addiction has infiltrated our lives in many, many ways. Maybe it's not your own addiction to things, but I'm sure you know others who may have been experiencing or are experiencing addiction. My guest today is Dr. Callie Estes. Dr. Callie works with both celebrities and non-celebrities in a variety of addiction-based uh, issues. She provides a really interesting combination of love, guidance, accountability, and toughness. I think you're going to find the interview that I have with her today to be very eye-opening and really learning about the facade of what you project out there versus who you actually are. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Callie Estes. Okay, today we have with us Dr. Callie Estes. How are you doing today, Dr. Estes? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I was just outside, and it's, a, it's beautiful weather up here in Washington State and on the border of the U.S.-Canadian uh, border. Yeah, it's just a nice day, so I'm enjoying it. I would trade you. I'm in Miami. It's 95. Mm. It's hot and humid. My hair is frizzy and I've had enough already and we're just entering spring. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. The like the heat in there. I mean, oof. Yeah, wow. it's intense down here. Although I don't want your winters. I'll take my winters and your summers. Yeah, yeah. No, your my winter is. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's certainly not your winter. It's like forties for winter, but you certainly have a better winter. There are way too for that. <laughs> so you know, I was introduced uh, well through Joe Beth. I was chatting with her, and then she said, "Oh, I have some people I think you would love to have on your show." And she mentioned you. I said, "Yeah, let's do it. Let's make it happen." You know, awesome. So um, I'm really excited to get into it with you and chop it up with you today. And I'd love to learn just a little bit about your background and kind of your motivations for getting into the business that you've been in. Sure. Where would you like to start? Let's start at the beginning, like how it all came to be, why you got into, I believe uh, you work in addiction and things of that nature, right? I do. So I grew up in kind of a crazy family situation. My dad was severely bipolar. Grandmother was borderline, and my family really wasn't like any of my other friends' families, and I couldn't quite figure out why. So I always had this like interesting theory, and, and how do I figure it out? And then I learned there's you know an actual subject you can study called psychology. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I want to study that. I'd like to figure out why my family's so screwed up. And I studied psychology, and as I started to study it, I thought, wow, you know, I'm learning a lot. This is really fantastic. I would like to work with crazy people. And by that, I mean, I want to work with, you know, the sex offenders and the murderers. And I wanted to do what the BSU was, you know, back then there wasn't a female in the BSU. Now it's huge. You know, they have criminal minds and all that stuff on TV. Yeah. And I wanted to be an FBI agent. So I studied at SCA Rockview, which is a male prison and for my internship. And I was the first female ever to be able to do it. And they put me with the drug addicts. And I said, this is going to be boring. And my mentor, who was ex-CIA, said, no, it's not. It's going to be fascinating because I'm going to teach you body language. And I said, okay, all right. So I learned it, and I learned I was really good at it. And as I'm learning it, I would you know, go out with my girlfriends you know, after school. You know, Thursday was ladies' night. And I always came home alone. I was never the person that came home with a guy. 
And one night I was sitting on the floor and I was really upset and I was eating cake and there's cake on me, there's cake on the wall, there's cake on the dog and I'm crying and my roommate walks in, it's like two o'clock in the morning and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, this is how I handle stress. And she said, okay, there's something wrong there. And I ended up going to the counselor who said, well, you don't really have an eating disorder and you have to remember this is in the 90s. So you're not bulimic, you're not anorexic, you're just fat and you eat too much. So she sent me to the fat doctor who put me on FenFen and I got addicted. Mm. Now I'm addicted to food and now I'm addicted to diet pills. And I went from 160 pounds to 90 pounds in 30 days. Whoa. Yeah. So I had to figure out what to do. And now it's okay. So now you're an addict. And as I'm studying addiction in class, I'm realizing I identify with this stuff. This makes sense. These are my people. And I started to specialize in it. I thought, you know what? I understand it. I'm really good at it. This must be my calling. And I've been from there, I started morphing into other things. I started adding fitness to my regimen. I teach people Pilates and yoga when I work with them. I teach them nutrition. And I just kept adding and adding and adding and even adding life coaching. And it grew and grew and grew. And I've been able to work with a celebrity clientele because my platform is so unique and I'm able to offer all those services. Oh, it's, it's, well, what a story about, I mean, you understand obviously, you know, what other people are going through that you work with, uh, with your own personal things that you've had going on. What is the, what is the hardest part about what you do? What is the most difficult thing? Well, it's not the client themselves. You, it's usually the family because the family wants me to get, you know, Bobby sober, which, which we can do. But then they want Bobby to be the Bobby they were 15 years ago. Uh, and that's not how this works. So it's very difficult explaining to a family, you know, the loved person you knew when they come out the other side of this, they're not going to be the same person. They're going to have different issues and different uh, coping skills and triggers that they didn't have. So telling a mom who says, please bring Johnny back when he was 16 and Johnny's 25 and shooting heroin, I can't do that. You know, I can get Johnny sober and I can get him to have a great life, but I can't bring back 16-year-old Johnny. Is it that they miss that version of the person and they just want to go back to that? that feel, yeah, that's you know, the happy time for them. The happy times, yeah. Right. And I tell a lot of families there, there could be a lot of happy times, but it's going to be different and it's not going to be the same. And that's okay. You have to be open to that. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people in a sense that we all, I've said this before that we always want to make home what it used to be. And so can I wish I can go back to the way things were and, and people kind of return home thinking that home will be how it was when they grew up in their childhood or whatever time that they felt it was very pleasant in their life and home. Why do people do that? Well, <laughs> Usually, and this is not my case, I go home and I hate it because I have no positive <laughs> memories, but right. most people growing up was security. You know, you had a bad day, mom made homemade macaroni and cheese to cheer you up and a homemade apple pie. And you went, mom loves me. I had a bad day and look what she did. Mm -hmm. She took care of me. So it has that feeling of security and safety and feeling good most of the time. I know when my husband goes home, he's 50. And his older brother's 55 and his younger brother's 45. And his mother still treats the three of them like they're teenagers. Right. So they walk in the door 
and she instantly says, oh, you know, what's going on? How are you guys? Did you get any trouble? To my husband, who's who has a criminal record because he was a horrible child from 16 to 25. He was in and out of prison for drug use. So her theory is, oh my God, he's going to get arrested. And I said, well, he's been with me for 12 years. He doesn't have any charges. You know, it's, it's kind of like he's changed, but she doesn't see that. And the baby who's 45, who has his PhD in clinical psychology, she still pets his head like a baby and says, sit down, let me get you something to drink. Let me get you something to eat. And, and they feel like, ah, oh, yes, mom is going to take care of us. And when I'm there and they have like a family dinner, no one does the dishes and I'm floored. And I said to her, well, let me help you. She says, no, this is what I do. And I'm thinking to myself, when you come to my house, they don't even feed you. You're, you're lucky <laughs> there's food in the fridge, if that. And then you have to feed yourself and clean up. So it's like, it's a whole different world. And I think a lot of people who had a good childhood really want that throughout life. And they want that feeling and they try to marry somebody who's like mom and dad who gives them that security. What is that inability of parental figures to not see their children as maybe the adults or the experts in their field that they are, even though they may be at an advanced age? I think for a mother or, or, or a father, that's always your baby. No matter what they do, that's your baby. And allowing them to grow up and flourish is difficult. Now, again, I came from a completely different situation where the goal for my mother, for me, like my aspirations, what they wanted for me was grow up, graduate high school, marry the local boy, move two doors down, pop out a few kids and work at the mall. That was all they wanted. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to make a million dollars and I'm going to get on TV. And I said that when I was 14 and they laughed at me and they said, our family doesn't do that. You know, we're, we're poor. We don't do that. You know, and I said, why not? And they said, because we don't have the resources. And I said, I'm going to make them. And they thought it was funny versus my husband's family who had the resources. They were both educators and all three boys were offered a full education. Two of the three took it. My husband didn't. He wanted to be a musician and went to LA and to be in a band and, you know, cram five guys in a one bedroom apartment. And, right. you know, he did the rock and roll lifestyle, but he had the resources and it was very different. And I think a lot of families, um, if they have the resources, they want the child to excel. In my family's case, they didn't know what to do with me. I was this anomaly that said, I'm going to be successful. And everyone kind of looked at each other and said, most of us haven't even graduated high school. Like that's successful. If you get through high school and don't get pregnant, check mark. And I'm thinking, that's it. That's the, you know, that's the ceiling. Right. Is that's it? the expectation. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go to college. And my mom went, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to do. So I figured it out, packed my stuff. And my first semester at college, I didn't, my loan didn't hit. So I had to save up enough money to pay for, for the college and I couldn't afford books. So I had no books in my first semester and I still got straight A's. And my mother was like, I didn't know you didn't have books. I said, yeah, I called. I asked if you guys could help me. And the answer was, well, we don't have any money. The answer was always, we don't have that. We don't have the resources. Right. So when you're faced with that, you figure it out and you figure out how do I make this happen with nothing? How do I pivot? How do I do this? And that's why I think I am successful they're so successful is because my family didn't help me at all. That's an interesting way of um, the outlook on that, because some people look at that in the opposite way of my family didn't help me at all. So I had no guidance and that pushes them down a weird path for people. It seems like there's kind of two ways of looking at it in, 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 in that aspect. 
Well, I say this to my clients, you have a choice. A lot of us have horrible childhoods, we have trauma, and you have a choice. You can live in that and be the victim and be, you know, 40 years old and say, well, the reason I'm not successful is my dad did this and my mom did that or they didn't do this. Or you could say, you know what, I'm going to do it for myself and I'm going to make it happen. You have a choice to do it or to not do it. And if you choose to live in the victim mentality, you end up becoming my client. Right, <laughs> right, right. It makes sense. Well, now, why do, you know, I had a very good childhood growing up and um, it's interesting. I mean, I know a lot of people who did, but I re recognize that there's a tremendous amount of people who didn't. And the more I talk to people, it sounds like a lot of people didn't have great childhoods. Why do you think it's so prevalent? I think because back in the 40s and 50s, the mother didn't work. She provided mm -hmm. home-cooked meals. She provided um, help with homework. That was her function. And she was there. She was available. And she went to your game, and she went to your cheerleading practice, and that's what she did. And my generation, I was born in the 70s, so he had both parents working. Two-parent household, both my parents. I mean, my father always owned a company and somehow tanked it. And my mother was making minimum wage her whole life. So that was, that was it. So they had to do that to support the household. And there wasn't that guidance. I was the kid who walked to first grade and came home and took the key from the porch and let myself in and made myself peanut butter and jelly and did my homework. And they showed up two hours later, if my father showed up at all. So I think having to have two earners in the family really changed the dichotomy. And now, you know, my mom would come home. She's exhausted. Cooking is the last thing she wants to do. And she was horrible at it. So it was hot dogs or yeah. you know, TV dinners or whatever. And then they would argue because my dad expected a big extravagant, he's Italian, a big extravagant oh, cooked meal. And she's like, I just worked all day. You know, you worked all day. Why don't you cook? So then they would fight. And it was like, you know what? That's kind of what I saw in my household. But my friends didn't have that. A lot of my friends had two parents that still loved each other and did the best they could. And they didn't argue and fight like that. Most of them are still together. Interesting. You know, I've, I think what is fascinating and maybe somewhat, I don't know if it's weird, but it's just, I've seen throughout the course, like my parents are still married and, and I can tell they love each other. They actually still love each other. They've had a very successful marriage, but it's also the other side of people who are married and they've just stayed together to stay together. And you don't see that element of they're still in love with each other. Maybe this is an obvious question, but why do people stay together even though they're clearly not into each other anymore? Well, in my family's case, my mother was a devout Catholic. Mm. So she, back in the 80s, you didn't divorce your husband because you would be excommunicated and her, her faith was the most important thing, even though he's running around cheating on her left and right with everybody. And she knew it, but it was like, well, I'm Catholic and they won't let me out. So she had that. I think some people stay together for the kids and they figure when the kids are 18, we'll divorce. I have a, a close friend that that happened to. She thought her parents were happy. They loved each other. And when she turned 21 and she had just left the house, she you know, was finished community college, was going to big college, packed her stuff. Her mom called her and said, by the way, your dad and I are splitting up. I have a boyfriend. He has a girlfriend. So when you come home he won't be here. The, your new possible stepdaddy will be. And she was devastated because she had no idea. So I don't know if staying together for the kids is a good idea. Um, 
or, or, you know, weighing your options and saying, do we want to be happy? And do the kids want to be happy? Because half the time they know you can't stand each other, especially if you're right. arguing. Yeah, exactly. I would, it just seems, it, it's, it certainly seems that it's common, at least I've seen it in my lifetime with other people. Um, but now then you see that a lot of people are divorced. But then I've, I started reading some information that um, the divorce rate is potentially down because millennials basically aren't getting married or they're waiting too much later. Have you seen that information or yes. what are your thoughts on that? I find that fascinating. So all of my clients that are like 18 to 32 are all single. And I find that fascinating because I didn't get married till I was 34. Mm -hmm. So I agree with that philosophy, figure out who you are, figure out what you want to do, make some money, get your career, travel, and then find your life partner. You don't have to do it at 21. So I think they're doing it correctly because people in my age bracket, you know, the 46 year old people who got married at 19 or 20, they've hit the midlife crisis. Right. You know, my female friends are running around getting Botox and boob jobs and butt jobs and hanging off a stripper pole. <laughs> and my Male friends are running around at Vegas hiring escorts and strippers. And I'm like, you guys should have done this when you were 20, you know, and they didn't. So I think millennials have the correct sauce to the successful relationship. What about on the other side of that, though? There's also um, been a lot of information related to the generation of lack of intimacy or sexual intimacy issues because of not being able to get connected or close to other people not related to marriage, but just like even the ability to just talk to somebody that they're interested in, in well, that sense. That's coming from the technology because growing right. up, my age bracket didn't have the phone. We didn't have dating sites. We didn't swipe left and swipe oh, right. Yeah. You had to meet people in public. You know, we had the phone that attached to the wall with the cord. So yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't see each other. So you had no idea, you know, if someone set you up on a blind date, I remember my mother, God bless her heart, when I was 27 and her best friend, he had a, she had a boy and my mom had a girl, obviously. And they said, let's fix the kids up because they're 27 and they're still single and, you know, whatever. So they sent us on a blind <laughs> date and God bless my mother's heart. This guy was not at all what I would date. And I was not at all what he would date, but we had no idea till we got there and we were complete opposites. So it was like, oh boy. So the millennials, you know, they can see so much of each other. And I think there's this pressure because if you go on Instagram, they've got these photos of like, I'm in Bali having a great time and I'm in Cancun having a great time. And I'm here in Europe and I'm thinking to myself, when I was your age, I could barely feed myself, pay the rent and pay the car payment. I wasn't in <laughs> Europe. So no. yeah, it's this expectation that their life's amazing. And then when they meet each other in person, it's like they have this like this lie. My life's really not amazing. It's, it's a lie. Yes. Yeah. And they don't know how to talk to each other because they're building, they're building their pre-relationship online on lies. You know, it's crazy. I was talking to, I think it was uh, a psychologist and they were saying about these two people they were treating and that essentially they couldn't have physical intercourse with each other essentially, because they weren't used to being around each other. So they had to be in separate rooms and watch porn in order to get aroused. Oh, to, wow. And that it's indicative of kind of millennial culture of this, this real lack of intimacy and knowing how to actually connect with somebody on a really deep, meaningful level. I, I thought that blew my mind because, you know, my I'm, I'm almost 42. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't have that choice, like to like, 
you know, video conference somebody or talk to them. Like it was like, Hey, we either talked on the phone, either it was either a busy signal or not, mm-hmm. you know, or somebody else in my family was on the phone. You had to wait mm-hmm. for you people out, people out there. I know this is a foreign concept and <laughs> <laughs> to wait to talk to somebody, you know, there was no personal phones or if there was, there were those gigantic brick phones that uh-huh. only certain people had. Boy, so it's just a whole different thing. So I think maybe our generation, we're used to not having the technology and having it, but they're used to just having it. And in many ways, it can be a real deficit because of that. Well, not only that, growing up, if someone was waiting for a phone call, you were not allowed on the phone. Yes. So now you're sitting around waiting for that phone to ring so that you can make the phone call that you want. And, you know, it, it takes forever. Whereas these kids have immediate gratification on all levels. You know, and just just to the point, the things we didn't have, like growing up, I had seven channels. I didn't even know what porn was. You know, these kids go Pornhub and they're on free porn at any point. And it's like, wait a minute, you have access to stuff we didn't have. That changes their core belief system. It changes who they are. And they all want to be YouTube stars. They're all, I'm a video, you know, I'm doing this video here and there. And now to do that and to get the likes and the rankings, you have to do some really stupid stuff. You know, right. people licking ice cream and putting it back. Like, that's just disgusting. But they're getting <laughs> likes, you know, they're getting traction. People like my video because I just did this stupid thing. And I'm thinking to myself, we had jackass. You know, we had Brandon oh, gosh. and Steve And yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm friends with Brandon Novak. I used to live right next to them. That's fine. So we had that nonsense, but we didn't have it, you know, from... 20,000 people. We just had it from one group of guys who you could choose to turn the TV off and not watch. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's a good segue into kind of that celebrity culture. And it sounds like, you know, with your line of work, you're dealing with that and working with that segment of the population. What is it with the psychology of, I would say the general population and obsession with celebrity? Well, I think people generally, two things. So first, if a celebrity has a crazy lifestyle, like the Kardashian, it's a train wreck on slow motion. It just mm-hmm. is, right? So they look at them and they say, I'm going to watch this TV show. And there's a whole hour of these three sisters talking about getting their brow waxed, eyebrows waxed. It's the whole hour. And it's like a, it's a train wreck in slow motion. So someone watching that is like, wow, my life's not that boring. Or my life is not that screwed up. So we watch like the honey boo boo stuff. You know, that's just another train wreck in slow motion. And we compare our life and say, well, at least I'm not that messed up. So that makes you feel better. But then you also have these celebrities that achieve greatness. And you look at them like, wow, this person's so amazing. And they have their life so together. And I'm absolutely adoring them. And then they do something stupid. They get caught drinking or drugging or get a DUI or they lose their job. Or they commit suicide and the public, general public goes, I can't believe that happened. Oh my goodness, I'm devastated. And they're too involved in that other person's life. So I know when Chris Cornell and then Chester Bennington committed suicide back to back like that, people had meltdowns. I had clients having full on meltdowns and I'm thinking to myself, you've never met this person. You don't, you don't know, even know this person. Are. Right. Yeah. How, you know, I, I knew Chester. How, how do you know? And he was suicidal all the time. So this was not an unexpected thing. And that was public. So somebody who's never met this person is like, I can't believe that happened. I'm thinking to myself, I can. You know, it's been an up and down roller coaster for the past 10 years. I'm surprised they made it that long. 
because mm. the people around him allowed that to continue. Wow. We saw that with Prince. Prince had a whole team that was purchasing drugs for him. Not one person had the, you know, the cojones to say no because they didn't want to get fired. And then we had the overdose and he dies and everyone's like, I'm just distraught. He was so amazing. And I'm thinking to myself, if you go back and look at his music and look at his career, he's a mess. He's a hot mess. And I'm, again, I'm surprised he lasted that long. So people, they only look at certain things like how amazing this person is and they don't see the deficit sometimes. That's what it sounds like. I mean, I think about like, like Linkin Park has been one of my favorite bands for a long time. And I, I was shocked that he um, committed suicide, but I wasn't like, I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. But I thought to myself, of course I didn't see it coming because I don't know him and I don't know what he's going through. But I also have all the albums and the albums are very painful. And you mm -hmm. can tell that there's a lot of anguish in the lyrics of a lot of the songs. So as I look back, I'm like, well, maybe he was reaching out during those that music and stuff, you know, and for that. But people don't know that. I didn't know that he was struggling with potentially committing suicide for a long time. I had no yeah. clue about that. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't because you weren't behind. How would I stage. know? Right. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing was he was on the right track until Chris Cornell died because they mm. were attached at the hip. And when that happened, it was like his world just shattered. And that's when his team, and this, this is the most thing that irritates me the most when it comes to these celebrities, they have the money, they have the resources, they did nothing. And they knew he was suicidal depressive. All they did was call his psychiatrist and ask for medication. They should have had a grief and loss therapist. They should have had a sober companion. They should have had someone with him. And they just didn't do it. And it's not a lack of resources. It's not a lack of knowledge. They know what to do, but it's more like, well, we really don't want to do that. We don't want to push that, you know, push this on him. And I'm thinking to myself, you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. What is the, take us inside it. I mean, as much as you can share without, you know, violating anything or sharing too much, you know, working with celebrities and addiction, you know, kind of break that down. What's that environment like? Have you ever had a five-year-old? Well, I have an eight-year-old right now. Okay. So. so when your eight-year-old was five and you went to Target and your five-year-old said, I want this toy. And you said, you know what? We're not going to buy that toy right now. Yes. And is, is your five-year-old a boy or girl? A girl. A girl. And she starts screaming in the store. I hate you. I want this. And people think you're murdering her because she's screaming, right. right? Now you're embarrassed. Now you're frustrated. You have two options. You can beat her in the store, which you'll probably get arrested for, or you can take her outside in the car and wait out the tantrum. That's what I do all day long. That's exactly what I do all day long. These people will have a meltdown because they're used to having a team of yes, yes people. Well, what's their meltdown like? What is that? You know, I mean, like I is it the same as oh, really? Yes. I'll give you an example. I have a client, had a client, famous guitar player mid forties and trouble getting sober. So that when they call me, I'm sort of the black ops. I come in, I drop the F bomb. I'm very, you know, here I am, hear me roar kind of a thing. And I came in and I said, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And his first words were F you. And I said, okay, you know, let me know when you're done with that. We're going to continue. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't want to do this. You're fired. And I said, I'm under contract with the record label. I'm not going anywhere. 
And he goes, well, I don't want you in my house. I'm like, the record label pays your bill. They pay the rent in the house. I'm not going anywhere. And he looked at me and he called me the C word. Oh, I, yeah. yeah. And this is in the first 10 minutes. And I looked at him <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm really disappointed. And he goes, why? And I said, he dropped the C word in the first 10 minutes. I'm really interested to see where you go now. And that's all I said. And he looked at me and he goes, what? And I said, well, you know, usually people reserve that for like the last argument when they, have, they don't know what else to say. I said, you just opened with it. So what do we do now? And he just looked at me and then he started screaming and yelling and throwing things. And I just kind of dodged a couple things. And I said, well, you know, now you broke your laptop and now you broke your vase. Uh, let me know when you settle down. And I just sat down and started filing my nails. And he looked at me and he's like, I hate you. And I'm like, you hate me because I'm the first person who's pushed back. And, I, and I'm not a yes person. And he had a full-on temper tantrum. This lasted probably an hour. And then he finally sat down and he folded his <laughs> arms like a five-year-old and oh, crossed him across his chest. He looks at me and he pouts and he goes, I hate you. And I said, <laughs> okay, that's fine. Are you ready to get some work done? And he looked at me and I said, I really hate you. And I'm like, I don't care if you hate me or not, honey. I'm here to work. I'm on contract. I'm going to get paid whether you like me or don't like me. And he looked at me and he goes, you really like this, don't you? I said, I love it. And he, <laughs> he goes, do you have kids? And I said, well, I have a stepson. But if I would have had kids, I said, I would have been that parent that just looked at you sideways and you sat down. So that's, that's what I deal with. I mean, that's on that level for men. Women are different. Women's celebrities are different. They're very histrionic. They're very borderline. They're very difficult. Um, I had in what one, way? Difficult in what way? Entitled. They're they're more oh, entitled than the men. Really? Yeah. I had one of the housewives, and her thing was the way she spoke to me was I was the hired help. I was the gardener, and I said. You know, I've got 25 years under my belt, 10 years of education. I'm not the hired help. You know, I'm here because I'm an expert in my field. And she looked at me and she said, you're overpaid. I said, that's your opinion. You know, opinions are like, you know, you know what? Everyone has one. And uh, she said, you should work for free so that you could understand what it's like to work with a high net worth individual. Oh. I looked at her and I said, you're not really that high net worth in my clientele base. And she just, she just looked at me and I said, yeah, we can go that way. So they're very snarky. They're very less warm. They don't really want you there. And they really don't want to stop their behavior. They enjoy the whole chaotic mess. Oh. So when you look at things like Brittany or Amanda Bynes, there's very little motion on the back end. Neither one of those are my clients. So I can talk about those two. Right. Um, what you see in public is not necessarily what's happening in private. There's a lot of meltdowns. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of mental health issues, unresolved mental health issues on those levels. And I see that in my clients. Let me say mental health. Are we talking about like diagnose mental health issues like bipolar, possibly even schizophrenia, anything like that? Yeah, I would. If I, if I had Amanda Bynes as a client, I would put money on her being bipolar. Easy. Um, right out the jump. So you see the behavior, you see the extremes. When you see the extremes, like getting in a, a cab in New York and going to LA, that's an extreme, extreme wow. thing. Yeah. And you see the wigs, you know, blonde wig, brown wig, white wig, green wig. It, it's trying to find identity. And then you see totally normal. And then you see two weeks later, this mess, it could be drug addiction, but most of the time there's a bipolar component mm -hmm. in there. So we see that. 
Um, and then different stars, if you, if you notice um, the Housewives in New Jersey, Teresa, the one that got arrested, mm-hmm. if you watch any of those episodes, that's borderline personality to a T. So when I'm teaching, I tell people, watch the show. If you want to see what borderline looks like, that's it right there. How does having a show help these folks? You know it what doesn't. I mean? It feels like it just pours gasoline on the fire. You know? It does. And you have to remember, the crazier they are, the better ratings they get. The more right. ratings they get, the more gigs they get. It's like reinforcing poor behavior and, and, and enabling their addiction or issue that they have. You know, Where are the people who are producing the show saying, hey, we need to care about these people. You know, This is clearly not good. I mean, it's just about money, obviously, then. It's all about money. And, and I'll give you another example was Charlie Shane. Charlie Sheen mm. on Two and a Half Men was phenomenal, phenomenal acting on point, And he had a crack cocaine problem and they did not handle it correctly. They should have had a sober companion with him, put him on a contract, put him on some rules and regs, someone that could handle that personality. And they didn't do that. They allowed it to snowball to the point where they fired him. And they thought that would clean it up, but it didn't. You know, and then he went over to anger management and he said, I'm going to do this. And someone picked him up. And it, it bombed. I mean, he hasn't recovered from it. So theoretically, they should have, and they would have made more money if they would have cleaned him up and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pay for it, how we're going to handle it. And they just chose not to do anything and watch it all implode. So you see that in Hollywood. And then you see the opposite, where they come in and they put them on such a tight contract that they have to follow X, Y, Z a certain way. And if they don't, you know, there's repercussions for that. Is there uh, maybe a substance that is abused the most in terms of addiction that you've seen working with people? In Hollywood or in general? Um, let's say both. So it depends my occupation. I would say most of my CEOs, which are my specialty, mm-hmm. um, cocaine, alcohol, and strippers, hands down. Oh, Okay. Mm-hmm. And I would say Hollywood is just, it's, it's a fishbowl. So it's everything from Xanax to alcohol to heroin to crack to meth to sex. It's gambling. It's all over the place. But the average person, it's more by location. So if you're in Miami, cocaine, alcohol, and strippers are kind of accepted. Mm-hmm. We have clubs down here where if you walk in, you know, it looks like a nightclub, but it's really a burlesque bar slash strip club slash escort type of place. It blows Vegas out of the water. And that's kind of accepted. So that's kind of what you do until it takes your life over and you can't, you know, you can't hold the job and hold this lifestyle. But in New York, they're not doing that. In New York, it might be cocaine and alcohol, or it might be Xanax and alcohol. In Boca Raton, Florida, it's Xanax and alcohol, which we call mommy's little helpers. So they mix those two. But in Ohio, it's heroin, fentanyl and dilute it. So it just depends on where you are, I think. Wow. I never thought about the kind of the regional abusive aspect of it. That's a very different take on that. Um, that's, I mean, it makes sense though. It makes a lot of sense based off the location. What about in LA, you know, Hollywood whole thing? Well, lots of Xanax, lots of cocaine, um, depends on the occupation. Depends on what they're trying to do and how much money they have. Because LA. What about musicians? Ah, musicians is heroin. Lots of heroin, lots of dilated, lots of oxy, lots of roxy, and then you'll see some cocaine. 
your 80s bands was used more cocaine. Mm-hmm. Your 90s was all Xanax and um, alcohol. And now with the 2000s, it's Xanax, alcohol, and heroin. But in the, that's in the, in the rock and roll side. In the rap community, it's Sizzurp, which is Little Wayne's mm-hmm. drink. Yeah. It's a lot of Xanax, like Little Xan and um, God, who's the guy with the tattoos on his face that's in movies now? Who is that? I don't, I don't know. Oh, he's, he looks like he's homeless. If you saw him, he's tattooed oh all over gosh. his face and he dresses homeless, but he's worth millions of dollars. I can't think of that's his crazy. name. He's in, he was into the Xanax. He's, he's clean now, but he was What's really. What's Xanax? What is, I mean, I don't I never took any of these things. I, what is that? <laughs> have, okay. Have you had a glass of wine? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I drink alcohol, but you know. How do you feel after a glass of wine? Uh, I feel pretty relaxed. Okay. How about two, two glasses of wine? Uh, super relaxed. Very, you starting to feel a little uh, loopy, I think a little bit at that point, you know? That's Xanax, but it, mm. it lasts eight to 10 hours. Oh my gosh. So you feel warm and fuzzy and relaxed and just chill and life is just going to be okay. Post Malone is his name. Oh, okay. Welcome to Dr. D's social network intermission. I like to use these times as a way to break up the show and a way for us to have little mini lessons. Right now, the lesson is we're at home. What are we going to do with that time? Are you moving towards something very positive or are you moving towards something very negative? Either way, whatever direction you go, you will grow in that direction. Think about it. Wow. So, yeah, so I think it, it depends uh, career. It depends on environment. It depends on what's, what's the, you know, what's accepted in that type of thing, in that arena. What is the success rate of people getting well from their addiction? Depends on what they do. If you go to treatment, it has a 95% failure rate. Because Whoa, treatment, like, what do you mean? Explain that. Yeah. If you go to inpatient, you go to detox, go to inpatient, you're there for 28 days or 30 days. Um, if you ever saw the movie with Sandra Bullock called 28 days, it's about her in rehab. Yes. Yes. Okay. That has a 95% failure rate because it's not customized care. It's very cattle, cattle prodding, as I call it. You go from group to group to group all day long. And then you have free time in the evening, smoke a cigarette, play dice, hook up with the, you know, cute boy sitting next to you, whatever. That's really not tailored to you. And then you come home and there's no aftercare. You literally get dumped back into the same toxic environment you took a 30-day break from. And people go right back into using. So I created a whole program called Sober on Demand to combat that. Because I got tired of seeing that. For 20, 20 years, I was watching that happen. And Sober On Demand, we bring the entire treatment to the client's house. Okay. So we do it in their environment. So when the stressors arise, you know, the person who knocks on your door trying to sell you drugs or the neighbor who comes over who, you know, has access to drugs, we're there. And we can work with those issues with you and teach you what to do 
instead of what you've been doing. That makes a lot of sense. I remember, I think, watching that show, Celebrity Rehab. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, this is crazy. And I was like, I don't know, you know, how much of it was just entertainment value and stuff. I mean, I have no clue, but I remember thinking, I'm like, this doesn't seem like it works, you know? Well, I'll tell you this. A lot of people from that show are dead. Oh a my gosh. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Is because again, because they're just being thrown back into the previous lifestyle? That, and remember, the crazier they acted on the show, the better ratings they got, the more... Yeah the more acting jobs they got, the more things they got. And that's what they wanted on these reality shows. I've been interviewed for four reality shows, all of which I've turned down. And it was because they're scripted. In the one they said to me, because I have an RV, my husband was a touring musician, so we have a tour bus. Right. And they said, we're going to take a tour bus. We're going to put you and five women. And I went, oh boy, this is not going to go. Oh well. no. Yep. In the middle of the desert and you're going to get them sober. And I said, how am I going to do that? Like, what, what's, what's the, you know, where are we going? And they handed me a script and I said, this isn't even correct psychologically, nor would I ever do this with my clients. And they said, well, that's what we're, we want and we'll pay you per episode. And I said, no, I'm not doing that because it's not accurate. It's not what I do. It's a bad representation of what I do. And those women are not going to get any kind of quality care. This is going to go south so fast and it's going to look like an episode of Big Brother. So. No. And they kind of got mad at me and they said, well, you know, why not? And I said, because it's not reality. This is not truth. It's not really what happened. Isn't that amazing? But you know, the general public, they're thinking that this is what happens. It seems like there's a big disconnect between the reality versus what is projected on TV shows with celebrity culture and these addictions and all of that. It, it is. It's, well, there's a miss nomer to the public of like what really happens like let's get the kardashians for a second mm -hmm. just just to look at that so they're here in miami sometimes you have the the mother who's <laughs> married to a successful lawyer who dies right so she has some money then yeah. she marries another man that becomes a woman well that keeps them in the spotlight yeah then she has these three girls and one does a sex tape so now they're in the spotlight right so what are they addicted to they're addicted to being she's addicted to being in the spotlight she has to keep doing it. Then the next one comes in, the next one comes in and whatnot. And everything they've tried to do business-wise has failed. They try to do a clothing line that failed. They try to do an exercise line that has failed. So they're not business people, the reality stars. That's what they are. And if you look at the photo of them before and after the plastic surgery, oh man, it looks like two different people are, you know, two different groups of people. They're also addicted to plastic surgery. So from an addiction standpoint, I'm watching this and I'm going, there's nothing, and, I, and I, I've seen them, I've met them, there's nothing on them that is real anymore. It's all doctored. So when you have, say, a 15 or 18-year-old girl, that's their role model. And they look at themselves in the mirror and they say, my God, I'm ugly because I don't look like this person. So then they become fascinated with whatever that is and they start going down that route and they learn two things. They're never going to look like that because they don't have the money for that particular doctor. Right. So they're going to get a less than quality. And then they end up hooked on drugs because they don't feel the same. But they're idolizing something that's not even reality. So it's so interesting when I'm working with, you know, just a regular population, how they see these people. And then remember, I meet them at their worst. So they're throwing up on the toilet with no makeup, no dress, yeah. 
you know, they look like crap. And I'm thinking to myself, that's your idol. Like, really? You know, what has this person done? They haven't really done anything. Give me somebody who's been successful. Make that your idol. I think this always, this sometimes this, well, maybe at least I think about it. And I've, I've, in my line of work, I've been a lot around a lot of wealthy people had fame and fortune and all this stuff. And uh, there's lots of very wonderful people. I'm not saying that what I'm going to say is casting a blanket on this, but I do think that there are also extremely wealthy people who are in the spotlight who actually aren't very intelligent and uh, are not as put together and thoughtful as you think they are in real life for that. Yeah. And so I think that there's these images and doctored up things and projections of people that make them what they're actually not. And then sometimes there are people that they are actually what you think they are for that. Yeah. I often don't think that's very common, honestly, when I meet people like that. So it's interesting, this push and pull of what's the projected you and what's the actual you. That's true. So I kind of look at it like you're your Facebook or your internet or your online persona, and then your real persona. There's two yous, right? When you go on Facebook, you're either complaining. You have the person on Facebook who's <laughs> always complaining. And uh, I would say, Facebook is not a therapist. Please stop. And then you have the person whose life is just always amazing on Facebook, right? They're everywhere. They're doing everything. And you're looking at going, how are these people that happy, right? Yeah. So, but in real life, that's not reality. And when I work with, like, I, okay, so for example, Kim Kardashian posts a selfie, right? Oh, this is a selfie of me. My daughter took it by accident. I don't know if you saw that. She no. put that out there. And I'm looking at that photo and I'm going, your tiny little daughter did not take that photo. It's yeah. professional lighting, professional makeup, professional hair, professional clothes. She probably took four hours of photos to get that one photo from a professional photographer. Mm -hmm. And then posted it and said, oh, look what happened accidentally. Because I'm thinking to myself... If you have a two-year-old taking photos with your phone, it's going to be of you in sweatpants with your hair sideways and no makeup. That's <laughs> yeah. what happens, right? Or they take a yeah. picture of half their face. They don't take the perfect picture of you. But the public went, wow, look how amazing she is. And I'm looking at it going, they don't realize all the work that went into the photo. You know, they don't do selfies. They have professional people come and, and do hair and it's hours and hours and hours right. to get 10 photos that they'll post over the course of 10 days. So- as, you know, as the public, we have that persona that we put on Facebook and, and social, and then we have the persona at home. And people generally are not authentic. And the one thing, you know, I've always been told is I'm authentic as they come. I don't doctor my photos. I look like that. I run around in workout gear all day long with my hair up. And, and that's what I created. That's, the, you know, the life I wanted. It's not pictures of me you know, extravagantly here and there and there. I mean, there's a couple pictures of me when I'm, mar I'd use it for marketing purposes, but not yeah. in that manner. So there is one person. And a lot of people have gotten so far away from that because of what's expected. What's your view of, man, there's so many things running through my mind. What's your view of, of working with, maybe you have or haven't, I don't know, like celebrity influencers. So maybe not your traditional, you know, someone's, uh, uh, a musical artist or they're a painter or whatever it may be or an actor, but these kind of celebrity influencers that have popped up, but seems out of nowhere through Instagram, maybe they're fitness people or whatever it may be, you know? Yeah. So they're getting paid to rep whatever product they're selling, whether they like it or not. 
So, for example, you have these big fit fab fun boxes that everybody and their mother's hawking, right? And you have this this person. There's a person in in my addiction industry, um, and she does these YouTube videos. She's she's just a regular mom, yeah. and she does these YouTube videos, and it's always selling something because she has this influencer group, and they're all buying whatever she's selling. And when you become an influencer, it's about money. It's about how much money can I get from how many products I'm hawking. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily authentic. It's not necessarily real. And it's not necessarily they believe in what they're doing, but it's I need to get money and this is how I'm doing it. So it's sort of like paying for a TV ad while you're watching your favorite show. You know, the Doritos commercial comes on. Or I watched the Super Bowl. The Cheetos commercial was hilarious. Yes. And... um that's exactly what it is. So you have someone's attention because you like this person or like what they have to say. And now I'm selling something. You're going to buy it because you like me. So that's the whole influencer mentality. And a lot of people don't separate the product from the individual. They say, okay, well, you know, this person's selling it. It must be awesome. No, it's necessarily how much the, the company paid them to, to sell right. the product. I find it all strange, honestly. I really do. It's always been like this weird thing. Like I've kind of seen through it from the beginning. And I'm like, this just seems strange to me. Like I always kind of question the reality of that. You know, I see something, I go, I don't know anything about that person. Mm-hmm. All I see is this product there. I don't know. Or they may, or this, like you said, this this pure happiness component of it. Or even now this pure let me show you my flaws. That's kind of the new thing. It feels like I'm going to show you how bad I look, or let me show you I have tough times too. It all seems like a reaching out for validation to me or to feel important. It is. Well, a lot of the celebrity, a lot of the celebrities and a lot of the influencers have low self-esteem. They need people to like them. Um, I have, I have a client that on Instagram, his biggest thing is he has to have likes on Instagram. So he's in Miami. Miami is notorious for money, right? So here he is in front of a Rolls Royce, all dressed up in an Armani outfit. That's not his. He lives in a cheap apartment that's um, a tiny little right. studio he shares with two other guys. And then you'll see a picture of him in front of this you know, amazing water fountain. And what he did was he went to Nikki Beach, spent the 10 bucks, 15 bucks cover, went in and took a photo of him all dressed up like he's somebody important in front of the fountain. And he's got 700 likes. So he makes him feel important. And I said, you don't know any of these people. None of these people care about you. They just like the photo. You know, they're like, oh, it's cute. You're in a photo that looks cool. You know, and he went into the Versace mansion and took a ton of photos. And I said, it looks like on the photos, it looks like it's his house. And I said, anybody who knows the inside of Versace's mansion knows that's not your house. But, you know, you have people around the world that don't know that. And that makes him feel good. And he's got a minimum wage job at a gas station. And I'm thinking to myself, be, you know, you need to be somebody. You need to validate yourself. You're using external validation. And when something goes wrong, you know, what's your plan? Man, I, I tell you, it's, I hope that a lot of people check this out because there's, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scene. It's like, I think about a Linkin Park song and when their first album hybrid there is like, you know, the face inside, you know, or the, basically what's going on underneath the mask that you're wearing. A lot of people wear masks and they're not, 
ready for you to see who they really are. I always find that it's a very freeing though, if you're just yourself and and people see the actual person. I think we have this perception that if people know who you really are, that they will just completely discard you. And I think that's, I don't know, I think it's better to just be yourself, you know? Well, it is because you don't have to keep up with that fake persona so often. You know, it's, it's a lot of work. And if you think about it, like we're in this, you know, lockdown phase, how many women out there are having meltdowns over their nails, their hair, mm -hmm. their Botox, because this is something they do to make themselves artificially feel better. They can't get. And I had a, a friend of mine called me and she's like, Callie, my hair just fell out. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I tried to dye my hair myself. I bought the wrong thing and all real long blonde hair. It all fell out. And she sent me a picture and she's in tears. She's bald. Wow. And I said, wow. I said, why are you dyeing your hair? And she said, well, my roots were showing. And I said, just leave it. You know, what's the big deal? It's, it's, a, it's a month. We're home alone. <laughs> no one cares. Put a baseball cap on until you yeah. think that we need to go. And she's just like, but I would know. And I said, and now you have a mess. Now you have to wear a wig. So it's that I need this to feel beautiful or I need this to feel prettier. I need this to feel valued. And it's, it's just artificial. It really is not what you need. Man, I, I'm sure there's many stories like that just going on all over the place. You know, uh, blonde people turning uh, brunette <laughs> again, you know, all this stuff going on hair just growing out of control all over the place with this going on. I, I wonder how this is affecting people, influencers and things of that nature with the lockdown and the psychology behind that, the feeling of importance or lack thereof. You know, I think I've seen in some news articles that there was an article, I think it was New York Times maybe, and they said the the burning of celebrity culture because of the backlash that celebrities were getting from making these stay-at-home orchestrated videos in their gigantic backyards and penthouses and weird Madonna videos and stuff. I just, it seems like a strange time, you know, with that. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, here's what I, I tell people. I've been virtual since 2012. I teach virtual classes. All of my competitors are still face-to-face. -face. They're all struggling, trying to, you know, how do I go online? I've been virtual with clients for a very long time, unless I fly out and I'm in person for my sober on demand, but it's learning how to pivot. I have a friend who's a celebrity trainer and he called me, he's like, what do I do? I said, you post, I'm teaching celebrity workouts, you know, 10 bucks, I'll be live at six o'clock and you get 10 people. You know, that's what you do. You do what you can. And we're not seeing that from the celebrity community. We're seeing the meltdowns in the tub because they need <laughs> attention. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not touring. I'm not in front of the stage. I need attention. So I'm going to make some weird video while I'm naked in a tub. So strange. Mm -hmm. I mean, just. And the goal was to get us talking about it. And here we are talking about it, right? We are. I know. It's hard to fall. It's not that hard to fall into the trap of that. You know, it's like, and you're right. There's a pivoting. I, I'm like yourself. I've been, uh, I've been live virtual, virtually with my personal training for a long time now and many years. And now I was just on a LinkedIn live today talking about that as a guest commentator related to that. A lot of my colleagues are just been thrown into it. Mm -hmm. And they don't know how to do it. And it's just kind of a mess because of that. And, you know, there's really no mentorship or understanding, but it's also kind of seeing around the corner before you get to the corner. 
And a lot of people who haven't done that, they haven't seen the trends moving towards these technologies and this digital platforms that we have. And I just think about how celebrities, it's like, if you don't have a movie set to be on or a place and you can't do these things, how do you get your validation that you've been on, you know? Well, exactly. And they're struggling. They're, you know, they're falling apart. No one's paying attention. So they're on <laughs> Instagram and, and Facebook, you know, doing live concerts and they need that validation. They need to play. They need to be part of something or they need to be in the limelight. And when it comes to the celebrity sector, negative press is good press because it gives them a platform. Like you're talking about Madonna naked in a tub and everyone was talking about this. And I thought, all right, I'll entertain myself. I'll watch five minutes of it. Mm -hmm. The first five minutes, you can't even see her. All I see are candles and her talking. And I'm like, okay, this is boring. So I forward through the video <laughs> and then I see her. And my only, my only comment, and I was talking to a psychotherapist friend of mine. She goes, what'd you think? And I said, she got a lot of Botox. She got a lot of things. <laughs> my wife said that. Yeah. yeah. My friend goes, that's what you took from that. And I went, yeah, that's exactly what I got. Like it just didn't, it didn't look right. She looks like a, like a zombie, like something's wrong. She does. And my friend goes, did you listen to it? I said, nah, I got bored. And she, she's like, you I couldn't tell you what she said. <laughs> like, <laughs> you listened to the whole thing? No, I couldn't tell you what she said. I, I, have, I just kept fixating on the fact that she looked like a lizard to me. I don't know. I was like, and I asked my wife and I were like, God, what happened to her face? Like, it was so like, it's, I, I mean, I don't want to be mean, but it's just like, when you do stuff like that to your face, it's like drawing attention to your face, yeah. you know, like, it's so just... And I wonder, do you work with people who have like that kind of the celebrity addiction to uh, aesthetics like that? Or is that, I mean, may not be a large part of your clientele, but I'm sure you've worked with some of those folks, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it is, especially with women, because if you look at the way society, they like men to age, right? Men yeah. get gray hair. Look more regal. Yeah. Right. Where the dad bod is in. <laughs> there's no mom bod. You have mom bod. It's like, oh my God, she's fat. She let herself go. So it's okay for men to be chunky or, you know, hairy or gray, but for women, it's, you didn't keep yourself up. You let yourself go. So it's always, I have to be thin. I have to be, you know, I can't have my gray in my hair showing. I have to have Botox. I have to have surgery. And it's interesting because I have a lot of my female friends all got Botox and I'll be 46. I still haven't done it. And my one friend is like, you need to do it now. And I said, what? <laughs> And she's like, because you're just going to keep getting more wrinkles and it's not going to work. And I said, I don't know if I want to stick that in my face. And she goes, oh my God, you're going to be so ugly in the next five years. Oh my said, gosh. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. I said, your face will be frozen. I said, at least I'll be ugly and I can have a smile. And that was my response to her. And she goes, really, Callie? Really? I said, yeah, really. I don't want to have frozen face. I mean, I love Leah Remy, but for God's sake, she can't smile. So, <laughs> my... My friend is just like, yeah, but you'll be timeless. And I looked at her and I was timeless. like, I don't want to be timeless. I kind of want to be old and cranky. And then I could be Sophia on the Golden Girls and I can get away with it. Love it. So. How do you, how do you kind of deal with after, you know, you're working with, you know, celebrity and non-celebrity folks and I'm sure you're, I'm sure, you know, you're even like that episode with the guy who's, you know, called you the C word and was throwing stuff. How do you come down from working? In these environments what's your way to kind of center yourself because i would imagine like anything with you're working with people you know there's energy uh that you're taking in and you know you're, you're working closely with people how do you keep yourself 
and debrief yourself from these situations? So that's the interesting thing. Most of my clients are narcissistic, self-absorbed a-holes. They really are. <laughs> so I love that population. And it fuels me because it's a challenge and it's fun. And a lot of people are like, they're exhausting. And I say, no, they're not. They're fun. They make, it's like parenting the bad child in Target. I love it. And that gives me energy. It's the clients that are depressed and don't want to change and no one loves me and the world sucks. They're draining. So mm. I'm, I'm lucky now in a position to not take them. I only take my fireballs. I take my guys that are you know, married with the white picket fence, the kid, the dog, the house, million dollar earner. They have the yacht and the motor coach. They have two houses and they've got six girlfriends and they're doing drugs. That's my client. Oh. I'm like, this is fun. Let's have some fun. You've got to peg down who you're working with. I mean, you got it, you know, zeroed in. <laughs> yep. Wow. That's amazing. Like, it's different worlds. That's one of the things I love about doing this podcast. I'm always being introduced to different atmospheres that I'm, I am not, you know, flying in on a regular basis. So it's a very uh, interesting lifestyle that you've had for yourself. And um, I'm very thankful that you gave me the time to discuss it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's it's very great stories, very interesting. And um, I think very relevant to our time and what we're going through. And, and uh, you know, lots of people are really focused and obsessed on celebrity culture or there's lots of addiction going on. And now we have this lockdown and all these things. There's just so much going on that can be very relatable to people. Yeah, it, it, it is. There's a lot of things going on and addictions going up because people are home alone and they're drinking and they're eating. And you know, this as a trainer, I'm sure your mm -hmm. clients are telling you I'm in the fridge constantly. Constantly. Yeah. I just had a client the other day. It was so funny. They go, Darian, I can't stop eating. <laughs> I yeah. just, I have so much more food than I normally have in this whole thing. And then I, my buddy sent me this thing. He's like, people are eating excessively, drinking like crazy, watching porn, yeah. smoking like, you know, I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And I said, it's, you know, it's sad, but for you and I, our business is going to skyrocket because yeah, people, course. you know, get out from this, they're going to be overweight. They're going to call you and say, what do I do? And you're going to say, okay, now, you know, game time's over. Our playtime's over. It's game time. You know, you're going to do this exercise and eat this food and do what I tell you. And I'm going to be called to come in with the, I drank myself to death and now I got to go to rehab. Yeah. And I wasn't an alcoholic before, or they're sitting around taking Xanax because they're anxious. I mm. got that call yesterday. The husband oh. called me and said, my wife went to the psychiatrist about a weekend because she was anxious with the lockdown. He put her on Xanax, took the whole bottle. Oh and my I, gosh. Yeah. And it was supposed to be a 60 day supply and she took it in three weeks. And I said, okay, we got a problem. You know, she's oh now going to be medically detoxed and she was not prone to addiction before, but because of the anxiety of what's going to happen, am I going to, you know, are we ever going to get off? And so I think you and I are going to see an increase in business um, with, with what's gone on. I think you're right for sure. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Estes. I mean, you're, you're an awesome guest and seem like a really great, uh, reasonable, fun, and a very authentic person. I love that in people. Well, thank you so much for having me on. You got it. And we will be in touch. All right. Thanks. All right. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.